This was recorded live at Trinity Church in San Juan, Puerto Rico. For more information, go to trinitypr.org. Good morning, Trinity. So good to be with you. We are in Psalm 95, but I want to start in John 4. So Jesus walks up to a well, and uh, he finds there a Samaritan woman, and he's pretty parched, so he asks her for a drink. It's a simple question. He's thirsty. But what ensues is like deep theological discourse. And after like this litany of questions that she's just like riddling off, Jesus speaks authoritatively on God's behalf. And he says, we just heard it, this is our New Testament reading, a time is coming and has now come when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshiper that the Father seeks. And so the question is, with that little response, like was, was Jesus doing something new? Right there. Because Jesus insists that God must be worshiped in spirit and truth. Not spirit or truth, not a spectrum, right? Not a preference. This is both of them. And anything less is not worship. Well, it wasn't anything new. This is what God has always intended, and that's what we're going to find even in Psalm 95. So Psalm 95 is what some theologians call the magnus opus of worship, right? In Latin, it's called venite because the very first words of uh, Psalm 95 is, O come, this call. And so um, let me just say, as we begin to study this issue of worship, I recognize that there are kind of three kinds of people here today. There are those of you who believe and you live in the presence of God. Worship is a part of your practice, a part of what you um, lean into daily and regularly. Then there's another group who you believe, but being in God's presence isn't your experience. You feel actually quite distance, distant from him. And then, dare I say, there's a third group. Uh, you don't believe, and you're asking the question, if you don't believe, what relevance is this issue of worship, right? You're just, you're just exploring. What, what, what does worship have to do with you? Well, the premise of Psalm 95 is that the God of the whole universe is calling you into his presence, and that presence, God's very presence, can make you whole, that you are actually designed to worship. So wherever you are today, whether you know it or not, you should be deeply interested in this issue, this question of worship, this idea of being in God's presence. So we're going to study Psalm 95, and we're going to understand why, and we're going to take our cue from Jesus' framework of worshiping in spirit and in truth. So life-giving worship must be in spirit and and truth. So for you note takers, those are our two points that will organize our sermon today. All right, with that brief introduction, can I invite you to stand, if you're willing and able, to the very best part of the whole sermon. Hear now the word of God as it comes to us in Psalm 95. Oh, come, 
Let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. And his hand are the depths of the earth. The, the heights of the mountains are, also, are his also. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. O oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massah in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. For 40 years I loathed that generation and said they are a people who go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. Therefore, I swore in my wrath that they shall not enter my rest. The grass withers, the flowers fade, the word of God endures forever. May he bless it for all of us. Amen. You may be seated. So it's Jesus who teaches us to worship in spirit and truth. So let's begin by seeing how this psalm teaches us to worship in spirit. Now, traditionally, uh, spirit-filled worship is, um, in some cases, like associated with maybe ecstatic or um, uh, miraculous experiences. Uh, dare I say, the Bible is not actually, never speaks about that as a spirit-filled worship. In some ways, this is actually a very confused um, Asunto. Uh, um, how do we say that in English? Um, issue, question in our modern culture. Um, it's very confused in Christian churches. I can remember uh, back when I was in the United States, uh, I was leaving church, and uh, this gentleman said to me, he says, um, I didn't like the music. I couldn't get into worship. I couldn't get into it. Like, what, what, what's, what's happening there? See, worship is a verb. It's not a genre, right? Sadly, this gentleman was confusing goosebumps with worshiping God. Why is that? Because worship is not about you. Worship is not about us. Worship is our way of assigning to God that he is supremely more valuable than anything and that it engages us and it transforms us in every part of who we are. Our emotions, yes, and our minds, and our will. So it's not less than emotions, but it's more than emotions. So in Psalm 95, we see worshiping in the spirit, right? Spirit-filled worship as engaging emotions and choices. So let's actually look how the structure of the psalm takes us to emotions and choices. You'll notice if, if you're just looking at your Bibles, there's a structure the word O come, you'll see that in verse 1 and in verse 6, that O come. Let's look at the first O come because it's going to invite us into uh, a, a, a spirit, understanding spirit-filled worship. Look, verse 1, it says, O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. Now, y'all see that repetition? Make a joyful noise, right? In verse 1 and 2. What is a joyful noise? 
Those are sounds of emotions, important emotions. Clearly, God cares about your emotions. God doesn't want you just to think right thoughts about God. He wants you to have right feelings toward him, right? I just want to say, because um, I have learned so much about this, I've grown in the last year from my friends, the Tillmans. You guys have taught me so much. Being in community, you have helped me to grow and to become a truer worship. And I'm so, I know y'all will be with us on occasion, but today's kind of your last Sunday, and I'm feeling it because I've grown, because you've really given yourself to my family in this community. So a little... I take a little moment of uh, pastoral privilege there, but I'm thankful for you because I've learned so much. And um, I did that for the applause for you. I'm just kidding. That's not true at all. Um, Let me tell you why uh, I've learned so much from them, but why this is actually uh, so important to God. I want you to understand why having your emotions shaped, why it's so important to God. First, it's that expressing joy, expressing that thanksgiving, as it says there, it, it, it completes the worship, right? It completes the worship. Let me explain how, how, how this might work. I, um, it was a couple of years ago, my wife and my children went to Texas for vacation, and I had to stay back in Puerto Rico, and I'm, I'm from Texas, so I was kind of missing it. So what I decided to do is I went, and I probably bought an overpriced but nice steak, and I was in my home by myself, and I pre- prepared it the way I was instructed in Texas. So I got it, and I sprinkled it only with Lowry's seasoning salt, nothing else. Don't put ketchup on it or barbecue sauce, just a little bit of seasoning salt. And then, I, of course, I grilled it just lightly, rare, and opened up a nice bottle of wine, and I sat there. Now I'm in my house all by myself, and I take the fork and the knife, and I cut into this piece of meat, and I inspect it, and it's nice. It's, it's nice and rare. It's bloody. And then I slowly just put it into my mouth, and what do I do? Oh, I just start making noises, right? Oh, what? Yes. Like, I'm putting up my arms like I'm a champion. Like, no one is in my house, and I'm vocalizing my just delight in this nice piece of food. Why? Because wouldn't it be weird to eat a nice piece of food and, like, not complete the joy? Like, just to move on to the next bite wouldn't make any sense. You have to, like, say something. Like, what? I didn't care that anyone was there listening. Do you see how, like, it made sense to complete that, that, in, that delight in that moment? That is what happens in when we give joyful expression in our worship, when it's vocalized. There's a second reason why these joyful emotions are so important, and here's why. It's that singing out loud, listen to me, singing out loud works on the singer. It actually makes the singer vulnerable. Do you know why men don't often sing in church? Because they know it's vulnerable to do it. It feels a little uneasy to really give yourself to singing. God knows that vocalizing these joyful noise makes the singer vulnerable. That's why he commands you to do it. Because it makes you ready to listen. Because it makes you tender when you say, all right, I'm going to make myself vulnerable with these joyful worship sounds. Does that make sense? It makes you ready to listen. Now, Worshiping in the Spirit is most certainly emotional, and it should be. But it is more than that. Let's look at the second O-Come. So you'll see in verse 1, it says O-Come, but then it repeats in verse 6. Do y'all see that in your Bibles? And it says what? O-Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker. Now, in this call, 
There's no joyful noises. Not this time. Now, this time it's reverent. And it's actually about our choices. So true worship, spirit-filled worship, engages our emotions and our choices. See, because spirit-filled worship is the Holy Spirit in us, and it's the Holy Spirit who animates us and, and, and works in us to new choices and decisions. And so when the, when the psalmist calls us to bow down, when he calls us to kneel, right, he's calling us to make a choice and to respond then with reverence. See, in worship, remember, we are ascribing to God the value of his worth. It takes our breath away, and it shapes us. And so worship begins to shape how we live, not just how we feel. The best illustration of this comes in one of Tim Keller's books. He says, imagine this poor woman, right? And she's, she's kind of limping along in life. She's really poor, and uh, she's struggling to pay her bills. And she, she starts dumpster diving, right, just looking for food. Uh, one day, she's kind of cleaning out all of her stuff, and she, um, she remembers and discovers this old piece of jewelry that had been passed down to her from generation to generation. And she's cleaning it, and she's like, hey, I'm going to take this to the jeweler, and I'm going to have him appraise it. Maybe I can get 100 bucks for it and pay my light bill, right? That's the idea. So she takes this old ring, and she takes it to the jeweler, and he takes out his little apparatus to investigate this jewelry. And the longer this jeweler looks at this piece of jewelry, his jaw just, you can just see him changing. His jaw drops. And he realizes that this is a kind of stone that's only talked about in fairy tales. It, it is so rare. It's, it's priceless, right? She'd been dumpster diving, and now she realized what she had the whole time. Listen, this is what we're like with God. We're completely unaware of what we have in Christ, unaware of his infinite value. We're limping along in life. We're dumpster diving because we don't know what we got. See, when this woman discovered the value of what she had, what did she do? She sang, man, joyful noises. It it animated her. It, It made her so excited, but it also began to change her choices. She started living differently because of what she had, didn't she? Right? Spirit-filled worship does this. Worship, that is when we ascribe to God the value of his worth, what do we do? We sing for joy, right? We get vulnerable. We complete that joy by vocalizing it, and then it shapes us. We bend the knee, right? we're, We're empowered to bend our knee before God and to obey him in new ways to live for him. This reminds me of a one-verse parable that Jesus tells us in Matthew 13. He says, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again. And then for his joy, he went and sold all that he had and bought that field. Field, right? For his, so you see him like joy, this explosion of joy, but then also this choice to make sure he buys this field. To do whatever he can to have it right? That is spirit-filled worship. All right, so, we, so what we've done so far is we looked at verses 1 and 6. We saw that come, that O come, that call. We saw how spirit-filled worship shapes our emotions and our choices, but Jesus says that worship is not only spirit-filled, but it's spirit and truth, right? So let's, let's keep looking at the structure of the psalm. Uh, after each of the refrains of O come, there is this 
conjunctive or coordinating adverb for, for you grammar people like my daughter, Ruthie. You'll look and see the word for, F-O-R, right? In verse 3 and verse 7. Y'all see that? For? All right? So you have the O come, O come, and then you have the for and for in verses 3 and 7. That word for means like because, right? It's an explanation. It's an appeal to your intellect. So all of our experiences of God must be rooted in truth. This is not like a Michael Jackson concert. In 1985, I was at the Thriller concert, right, in the Houston Astrodome. And people are going crazy. They're having deeply emotive experiences, swaying. People are passing out. They're, they're using like the hose to hose people down. They are worshiping, I promise you. But it wasn't in truth. Right? It wasn't in truth because what God commands of our worship is spirit and truth. So let's see um, the first explanation, this first four, beginning in verse three. And we're going to see the reasons here for worshiping God. And it's, it's self-disclosure. God reveals himself to be, look there in verse three. It says, the Lord is a great God. For the Lord is a great God, a great king above all gods. And his hands are the depths of the earth. Heights of the mountains are his. The sea is his. He made it. His hands formed the dry land. So there's kind of two things I want you to see in that section from three, these reasons for coming. The first is that God, when he discloses himself, God is the one and only creator. You see that language of creator? He's above all gods right? The earth, the mountains, the sea. See, back in that original culture, in that original culture, the gods were um, often associated as residing in or analogous to the mountains or the sea or the moon or the sun, right? Everyone's worshiping those kinds of things. And, 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 And in this, we're seeing like, it's like saying, don't you see? Like, God made that. That thing that you're worshiping, that's a plaything for God. He is the creator. So worship the creator, not his plaything. Does that make sense? And the second reason that we see that's implicit here is that the basis of worshiping God, the basis is God telling us who he is, not us telling him who he is. Right? This is really important because kind of in our cultural moment, We make God in our image instead of letting God make us in his image, right? God begins to um, look a lot like our cultural moment when people start describing what God is like. We create him and we form him and we say what God is like. And that God, that version of God that you just made, he'll never contradict you. He'll never rub you wrong, right? Because you made him, right? And uh, he just kind of rubber stamps what we want to do anyway. He kind of baptizes our ideas. That isn't real. That's not the real God. That God, that idol of our imagination, that God didn't make the heavens and the earth and the sea. That God's just a little idol of our imagination. And the worst part of this trinity, the worst part of this is because he's not real, That idol can never help you when you call upon him because he is deaf and mute and dumb. He's not real. That's the worst part of this. We need reasons for our truth, and it is important 
that we understand God for who he discloses himself, that we don't form him in our image and according to our cultural moment and imagination. So truth-filled worship appeals to our intellect, but it also, re- also reminds us of past lessons. So look now in verse 7, you guys. This is the second four, the second conjunctive adverb. So here we find a positive lesson and a negative lesson. So verse 7, it says, For he is our God, we are his people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. And this, of course, is just a real brief appeal to Israel to remind them that God is our shepherd, right? Psalm 23, he guides us, he takes care of us, he has cared for us. But then right at the second part of verse 7, it takes a really ominous turn, like right away, doesn't it? So from 7 and then to the end of the psalm, it reminds Israel of two really bad events that happened in Meribah and Massah. And uh, these two stories are recorded in Exodus and in Leviticus. And so let me just quickly summarize them because these two stories share almost identical behaviors. Like they're similar templates. So if you'll remember, Israel is in Egypt for 400 years. All right, they, They're slaves under the oppression of Pharaoh. Their men worked for 400 years. Back-breaking work. Never had a day off. Many of them died in their labors. Their women, their daughters could be summoned by their Egyptian masters for their own sexual purposes. Their own firstborn children were murdered. That's where they come from. Now, God rescues them with Moses through, like miraculously through the Red Sea. They're traveling through the Sinai Desert on their way to the promised land, the land flowing with milk and honey. And when things get a little bit hard in the desert, what do they do? They revolt against God. I want to go back. Like, I would rather be under the oppression of Pharaoh than this God, Moses' God. Because at least there, I got a little bit of meat and potatoes, right? Like, so what they're doing is they're comparing what the gods of Egypt paid out to what they think the God of Israel is going to pay out. And here's what we learn. Here's what we learn. They never loved God for who he is. They loved what they believed God was going to give them. And so they sold themselves to the highest bidder. That's what they did. They sold themselves to the highest bidder. God says, all right, that's how it's going to be. I am going to give you exactly what you're asking for. I am going to, I'm going to let your gods give you what they will give you. Death. No rest. Verse 11 then says, They shall not enter my rest. And that generation did not enter into the promised land. Now here's the logic. This is why the psalmist is putting this into this this psalm for us. The lyrics. It's the logic is this, that we must give ourselves to truth-filled worship. And we must know God for who he truly is. We must love him for himself, not what he can give us. Why? Because you, your heart, will worship other things. You will give yourself to the highest bidder. Listen, the world is not divided between people who worship and people who do not worship. Everyone worships. Even the atheist worships. And so the question is, 
The question, and listen, Trinity, is what does your worship produce? Does it give life? Does it give rest? Or does it take life and take rest? I'm so thankful that Jeff introduced me to this guy named David Foster Wallace. He's a brilliant writer. He's nominated for uh, a Pulitzer Prize. He is not a Christian. He's not a Christian. He actually struggled with depression for a long time. He took his life in 2008. But man, he has these really interesting and prophetic words. And I, want to list, I want you to listen to a portion of the speech that he gave to the graduating class at Kenyon College. All right, this is at their graduating ceremony. This is what David Foster Wallace, a non-Christian, writes. He says, here's something else that's weird, but it's true. In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to, to worship, be it Jesus Christ or Allah or some inviolable set of ethical principles, is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough, never feel like you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. Worship power and you will end up feeling weak and afraid and you will never and and you will need ever more power over others to numb you to your own fear. Worship your intellect Being seen as smart, you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. But the insidious thing about these forms of worship is not that they're evil or sinful, it's that they're unconscious. They are default settings. To be human is to worship. To be human is to worship. These are sobering thoughts, right? Even a non-Christian can see the wisdom that we see here in Psalm 95. Truth-filled worship means that you recognize God for who he is, who he says he is, and you learn from these past lessons. Truth-filled worship means that you ascribe to God the value of his worth and allow that experience to level you, right? To drown out everything else that you are prone to worship. Don't worship the things of God. You must worship him as he declares himself to be. And you allow that worship, truth-filled worship, to relativize the worth and value of everything else. True worship must drown out everything else that is vying for your love and your loyalty and your obedience. Otherwise, there will be no rest. No deep soul rest that you're really looking for. Those are the stakes of this conversation on worship. The stakes are high. All right. Thank you so much for paying attention. Let me conclude. So we began our study of Psalm 95 by kind of recalling uh, Jesus' words to the Samaritan woman when he said, true worshipers must worship God in spirit and in truth. And so we looked at spirit-filled worship And then we looked at truth-filled worship, right? 
But after, if you remember in John 4, if you're familiar with the Bible, after this woman had an encounter with Jesus, she realized what she found, right? I mean, do you remember, like, how the story ends, where it goes? This woman with like a shady past, whose heart is riddled with shame, riddled with loneliness and anxiety, something happens, right? She realizes the value of what she has in this deep rest. It pours over her and she begins to worship and she runs off with joy, right? No more shame. With joy, she goes into this community that otherwise had rejected her. And she says, I have found something more valuable than anything, than anything a man could ever give me. You have to meet this man. He's the Messiah, Jesus. Isn't that something? Isn't that something that that's how the story ends when she realizes what she had? It reminds me of Jesus' one-verse parable when I cited it earlier, right? The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then for joy he went and sold everything he had to have it. However sweet that parable is, it's not enough to make you worship. Only the gospel can do that. And listen closely. In Jesus' one-verse parable that I just read, he's not talking about you. He's talking about himself. Jesus is the man in the field who found you, who went after you, and then he hid you in his heart, and for the joy of the love and relationship he has with you, he sold everything, right? He gave everything away, even his own life, and he bought you to have you with his own blood. That's the gospel. That is, his, if you drill that deep into your heart, then you will worship in spirit and truth. And this will be the single most precious thing in your life that will drown everything else out. And it will animate a new affection for the Lord and new obedience for Him. Psalm 95, would you allow this template, this command of worship to shape you now and forever? Amen? Amen.